Hello, and welcome to the Great Birth Rebellion podcast, where we grapple with current research to help you get the best out of your pregnancy, birth, and postpartum journey, while still challenging the dominant birth culture. I'm your host, Dr. Melanie Jackson at Melanie the Midwife, and I'm joined weekly by my co-host, B from Core and Flora Store, and this is the Great Birth Rebellion. Welcome to episode 24 of the Great Birth Rebellion. And today it's B and I, and we are talking all about placental birth. All right, so what is the placenta? So the placenta is actually the genetic material of your baby. So when they have a look at it um, on a histological level, so the actual tissues, the baby grows its own placenta and so it's not the maternal organ, it's the fetal organ or neonatal or baby organ. Uh, and for that reason, you know, some people do really hold it as a sacred organ. And like you said, lots of cultures have a lot of ceremony around the placenta, around the burial, around the cutting of the placenta off from the baby. Uh, so there's all kinds of practices that honour honors the placenta as the baby's possession but certainly the baby grows it and the baby uses the placenta to implant itself to the inner layer of the mother of its mother's uterus so the uterus has three layers and on the very internal layer is where the placenta will uh, implant so So the layer closest to the baby correct so most of the time it implants in a healthy way and there are abnormal placentation processes but that's not the topic of today we're going to talk about normal normally implanted placentas today and perhaps that will be a topic of a later episode we'll talk about abnormal placentation but so the size of the placenta roughly approximates to about one sixth of the weight of your baby uh, so that's roughly how big your placenta is going to be obviously that you've got a three kilo baby it's around 500 grams yeah beads does the math on this i'm the math I'm the math person. (laughs) And it should, in a healthy pregnancy, stay attached to the side of your uterus for your entire pregnancy, your entire birth. The baby's then born, and then your body goes through a process of giving birth to the placenta. So it's not, once your baby's born, that's not birth finished. And obviously, I'm a home birth midwife, so I speak a lot to my clients about the labor process and birth process and you've not finished until you've had your placenta and you're no longer bleeding excessively as a result of having given birth to your placenta. So there's still effort involved in giving birth to your placenta if you are in charge of that process. If the birthing placenta birthing process is handed over to the clinicians at your care, so if you have a midwife or an obstetrician at your birth, A lot of those healthcare providers will assume responsibility for your placental birth and you might not even realize it's happened because usually the placental birth process or what mainstream maternity would call the the third stage of labor, placental birth, is completely managed by your healthcare provider. And we're going to talk about how they manage that and why they manage that. But if you were to leave it alone to give birth by itself, Once your baby is born and your uterus is empty of baby, it kind of collapses in on itself, contracts like it would if you were having a contraction to bring your baby out, 
And because the placenta is not flexible and can shrink like the uterus, it sort of gets sheared off the side of your uterus, but also in that process builds up this blood clot behind the placenta, which kind of acts to push it away from the uterus wall. And actually, if you're you're interested in seeing what this looks like on the placenta, I actually have a full placenta tour on my Instagram page at Melanie the Midwife. And it's of a completely undisturbed placenta. The woman gave birth to it and you can see the whole placental clot that comes behind the the placenta on it. It's a full tour of what of what it looks like. So you can see what that what that looks like. So some blood loss with the birth of the placenta is actually part of the physiological process of pushing it off the uterus. So we expect some blood loss, but not too much. And we'll talk again, we're going to do PPH in next week's episode. So we can talk about what is too much blood loss and what's okay. But that's the very basics of how it comes off the side of your uterus. And then there does need to be some element of gravity or downward pressure for the placenta to be born. It doesn't really get pushed out like the baby does. Um, It usually relies on a little bit of maternal effort or an upright position in order for it to come out. Some women give birth to their placentas in the water where there's less gravity, but in my experience, women more likely need to either hop up onto their knees, sit on the toilet or come up out of the pool in order for the placenta to release out of their uterus and through the cervix and out of their vagina. I think an important thing to understand in this process too is that the womb comes down. So when you're, as you're birthing your baby, when you're going to labor, if you're full term, then the top of your uterus sits underneath your ribs. And then as the uterus plunges the baby down and out, the uterus, the top of the uterus moves down to around your belly button. So it drops down a decent amount. What's happening is the whole unit is moving down and out together to a certain point. And so the baby comes out and so the placenta is much closer to the introitus of the vagina, the the exit point. Um, And so that gives more cord length. And the placenta will hopefully not detach until the baby's finished with it. So there is a transition process that when your baby's born, it transitions from receiving all its nourishment and oxygen and everything through its um, belly button, through the umbilicus. And then almost immediately, within a minute or two, completely transitions to breathing air. And it's not until that moment that the baby's body will internally cut off supply to the placenta. But if that process hasn't properly happened and the baby hasn't fully transitioned for whatever reason, if there's an issue and it hasn't been able to take a good, effective first breath, then it will still keep pumping blood through the cord And any blood that's in the placenta is actually part of the baby's circulation. It's not the the mother's blood in the placenta. It's the baby's because actually the baby's blood and maternal blood never actually mix. So maternal blood can transfer nutrients, sometimes medications, oxygen, and everything through into the baby's blood supply. But it kind of floats out of the woman's blood supply and absorbs into the baby's blood supply without the two having to mix and interact. So the woman can have a completely different blood group to the baby and that's okay because 
There's no actual blood mixing. So any blood that comes out of the placenta has all been in and belonged to the baby its whole life. It's never been maternal blood. So as the so when the placenta detaches, usually it's because the baby's finished as well. So there's an interaction between the mother and the baby. And so if the cord's still pulsing and the placenta's still attached, it's possible that the baby still needs it after being born. So we don't rush the process of placental birth for that reason because there's a physiological process going on to not only keep the woman safe but the baby safe as well. And the hormonal process that goes along with with the placenta removing itself from the uterus is that once your baby's born, you'll actually get the highest oxytocin hit that you'll ever have in likely your whole life and higher than it was during the birth. And oxytocin not only encourages bonding and love, so the minute you see your baby, there's just an immediate hormonal setup to fall in love with it, but oxytocin also is the hormone that contracts your uterus, which facilitates the separation of the placenta and also keeps your uterus contracted to reduce postpartum blood loss. And so if that physiological process is all intact, then the placenta should come away by itself and the woman shouldn't bleed excessively after the birth. The baby should have time to receive any oxygen and nutrients it needs from its placenta before it cuts off that supply and fully transitions to breathing air. And so that's kind of the physiological process of the placenta coming out. And also we don't cut the cord in that process. The baby stays attached in which case it also must stay with its mother. And part of the physiological process of placenta is that the the baby and the woman um, are not separated. Because there is approximately one third of the baby's blood supply still in that placenta when it's born. And so it's, it's really a resuscitation unit. And you know, I, I teach maternity emergency courses to doctors and nurses and people that live in rural and remote areas for an organization. It's a volunteer gig that I've had for years now. And I remember like 13 years ago, I remember I was in like the back of Woolworth in Western Australia and I was saying, you know, in 10 years' time, there is no way we are going to be resuscitating babies away from their mothers. We are going to be resuscitating babies with the cord attached. And it still hasn't happened. And um, it blows my mind because it's like, you know, at home births we do, obviously. Um, And at home births, especially when I've worked in the um, home births to the public system, we have little neopuffs. So we have the resuscitation equipment that that the hospital has, but rather than it being hooked onto a resuscitator on a wall that is unable to be moved around the room, we have a portable one. And And so you take that to... The, the mother and the baby and the baby is still getting its blood and its oxygenated blood whilst you give it some extra support. If we took, if we think about how this third stage of placental birth is kind of, I'm saying managed by inverted commas, how it's managed, we could break it up into three different options, I suppose, for how your placenta is going to come out. For a long time, midwives have spoken about physiological placental birth or actively managed placental birth. But there's a third option, and that comes before the physiological. It's the least, least, least medical option for placental birth. And uh, there's some research by Hasty et al. Again, it'll be all in the resources. If you're on the mailing list, you have access to the resource folders. This will be in there. 
in 2009, wrote about psychophysiological placental birth. And this was a differenti differentiation between straight physiological, what we've come to think of as physiological birth. So I'll take you through the three. We'll start with psychophysiological birth. We'll talk about physiological birth and we'll talk about actively managed placental birth because these are the kind of three ways your placenta is going to come out. Later on, I also want to talk about placental birth after having had a cesarean. So psychophysiological placental birth focuses on the actions of a midwife who's known to the woman or chosen by the woman to attend their birth in a also physiological setting like a home birth or in some birth centres that are very low intervention. So this is a type of placental birth that can't be mimicked at all in a hospital, hospital setting, no matter the skill of the midwife or the philosophy of the midwife or how physiological the midwife believes they are or how straightforward the birth is. If you're in a hospital, you can't have had a psychophysiological birth, placental birth, because it relies on the interaction of the birth environment, very, very limited intervention. And one of the biggest interventions that there is in birth is getting in the car mid-labor, driving to a new strains facility and entering that facility. So already by moving yourself into hospital, you've taken yourself out of the psychophysiological option of placental birth. You can still have a physiological placental birth, but it's not the holistic placental birth care that we're talking about in this section and what these researchers are talking about. So it relies on the midwife being known to the woman, enhanced feelings of safety, a familiar environment where the woman feels comfortable and safe, uh, low intervention birth where the woman is at low risk of postpartum bleeding and the care of a midwife who's provided holistic care, which includes the physical, psychosocial, social, emotional, cultural safety that's offered in that kind of birth model. So it's already a pretty boutique option for placental birth. And uh, there's research on the effectiveness of this type of approach to placental birth. And if you read the paper, they detail in full lists of what factors uh, would make it a psychophysiological birth process. So they talk about this thing of midwifery guardianship of the placental birth process. So a psychophysiological approach to, to placental birth relies on the meeting of certain, I guess, eligibility criteria. So firstly, it has to be a model of care where the woman has had that midwife be her primary care provider. The woman's had a healthy pregnancy and we're not expecting any um, unique complexities. The woman has information about and has discussed birthing of placenta. So basically, we've sat down and had a complete education session about placental birth, how it works what it involves so that when the woman comes to giving birth to her placenta, she's aware that it's it requires her effort and her attention. And so the woman has to be well prepared. So this can be a difference between psychophysiological placental birth and just straightforward physiological birth, that the woman has been actually prepared and educated about placental birth uh, and that she's consenting to this way of doing it. And she's agreed that this 
feels like the best way for her to birth her placenta. And they talk about the woman being in a mind, in a mindful, has having a mindful approach towards placental birth. So not just kind of having the baby and then forgetting about the rest of the process. It's only best to do physiological or psychophysiological placental birth if the rest of the labor of the birth has been uncomplicated. So was it a normal vaginal birth without too much interruption? If it was, you can kind of move on into the process of also having an uninterrupted placental birth. The next criteria for this psychosocial placental birth is um, that the woman and her baby are physically and emotionally healthy at the end of the second stage. There are some times at a home birth, for example, where the woman's had her baby and just looks at you and says, I do not want to give birth to my placenta. Can you just sort that out? I don't I don't want to put the effort in. You know, it might have been a long labor. She might be emotionally exhausted. She it might have, you know, her expectations of it might have been different. And she's just not up for birthing the placenta now. And that's okay. That the attending midwife knows how to act as a midwifery guardian for the to preserve the physiological state that's required for psychophysiological birth. And that means that the midwife's not touching anything, not saying anything, is protecting the birth space from intrusion, keeps the lights down, the room's still warm, isn't poking around on the woman's fundus and uterus, isn't kind of injecting any activity into the birth space. So there's a way of being with a woman that will actually allow her to be in an optimal state to give birth to the center. Also, immediate and sustained mother and baby skin-to-skin contact so that you don't separate the woman and the baby. The mother and baby are kept warm, so all fans turned off, everyone's wrapped up in a nice big blanket. The baby's allowed to self-attach to the breast. The woman's in an upright position, which I was speaking about earlier, with just the assistance of gravity to bring out the placenta. The midwife unobtrusively observes for signs of separation of the placenta and the placenta is born entirely by maternal effort and gravity with no cord traction, so no pulling on the cord, no fundal massage, and the midwife is just there to gently encourage and be present and mindful with the woman and sort of give gentle reminders to focus on the woman's, to her, for the woman to focus on her baby and the birth of the placenta ahead of anything else and then it also relies on the partner or support people to ensure that their interactions in the space remain focused on the woman and baby dyad until this placental birth process is complete and you know call the halo don't we like having that halo around the family to protect it Absolutely. And, you know, I talk to women as well about sometimes if their children haven't been in the birth space during the birth and then the baby comes out and they go, oh, go wake up the kids. It's time to tell everybody and call mom. And like, it's a, whoa, hang on. We're not finished yet. Like if you suddenly go and inject three excited children into the space and get on the phone, or I've seen women like in Zoom conference calls with, you know, somebody overseas to show off their new baby and the placenta's still inside. We've got to protect this space. So there's a whole lot more to the psychophysiological placental birth process. And I really encourage you to read that article, which is called, so it's by Carolyn Hastie, 2009, Optimizing Psychophysiology in the Third Stage of Labor. 
And there's a whole lot of steps there on how we can be a midwife to facilitate this kind of placental birth. But know also that it's not possible in a hospital to do it this way. It's really interesting. I think one thing we've kind of left out is that the uterus keeps contracting. So you actually, you do experience contractions and it will continue to contract to help that placenta come away and then be born. And that is the maternal effort. That's part of it. With the contraction, you will feel the urge to kind of, you know, give birth to that placenta and it feels like pressure. Obviously it's soft and mushy. There's no bones in it and it's not, you know, it feels giving birth to your placenta feels very different to giving birth to your baby. Nothing compares to that placenta coming out of your body like there, because then it's done. Like the feeling of giving birth to a baby is amazing, but the feeling of giving birth to a placenta, like that's the finish line. You know, it's interesting as you were saying, all those things around the psychophysiological, have I said it right? Psychophysiological, is that what it's called? It reads like psycho, yeah, psychophysiological. Psychophysiological, psycho, the psychophysiological. I know, I want it to be different, but it's not, it's psycho. It's not. I can understand like psycho-spiritual physiological birth, but that's a big name. But um, I, it took me one hour to birth my second baby and it took me two hours to birth my placenta. And as a midwife, and I even say this in the free antenatal classes, if you want to give birth to your placenta physiologically, your whole environment has to be committed to that. It's not a time to make those phone calls. It's not a time to, you know, bring the other children in and all the rest of it. And I myself, after speaking that to so many women, I gave birth to my baby and I went from this dark, quiet environment where there were only two women present. And then my son and my husband came running in. And then we all walked out into the lounge room, which was bright, much brighter Um, because the sun had risen um, and a different temperature. And then I hopped into the bath and my son was splashing in the birth pool with me. And then my midwives turned up and then the neighbor turned up with pancakes. And then my 19-year-old niece who was living with us woke up and all this stuff happened and I could not get my placenta out. And I knew it. I was not in the zone. I I had a cord hanging out of my vagina at a placenta in me and a baby out of me and I was in this very alert state that was not in the labor zone oh I feel like we so need to change that song dun, dun, dun. I can't get the tune right now labor Dang. zone Danger zone, right? But you just changed it to the labor labor zone. Why hasn't anyone done that before? Why has it not been done? I feel like I was the person to do that though. So I was not in the labor zone um, and I was out of it. And so I definitely did not have the psycho-spiritual physiological birth. I did have a physiological birth. I was begging for an active management because I was just done and I wanted it over. I had not a drop of blood loss. We were all very healthy. And I ended up clamping and cutting the cord, handing the baby over to someone, bending over because I just needed to stand and have my hands on something. And I burst it and I was like, thank goodness that is out. But, you know, that environment, you really have to think about this when you think about how you want to birth your placenta. Because just like you think about how you want to birth your baby, you've got to think about how you want to birth your placenta, but also know your options. You can change your mind at any time. You can say, hey, that birth was epic. I don't want the active management now. I want to have that physiological management. And because they're with me and they're cared for by me, me, and we've talked about what a physiological birth space needs to look like and how it needs to be protected, then we do that. And I say to people, you have to be just as committed to that placenta as you are to the baby if you want a physiological birth. Or you can say, wow, birth was not what I was expecting and I'm really tired. 
get stick a needle in me and pull it out. So there is, there's always choice. It's about knowing your options. And the heartbreaking thing is most women don't even know, or most families don't even know that there are choices. Most people just get an injection. They don't even know that they've had it. I think what you were saying around psychophysiological birth of the placenta can feel triggering for birth workers, saying that it can't happen in a hospital. And I can imagine how that can feel triggering. And, you know, even as you were saying, and I was like, oh, I've created that space in a hospital. But really listening to how they've researched it and defined it and then experiencing different placental births personally and then caring for different placental births, it is a much different feeling when you're at home. And so, yeah, I can, I just want to honor that, that it can probably feel triggering hearing this, but I I do agree with it. It is completely different and it's not always achievable at home. For the midwives who are feeling triggered of like, how dare you say I can't provide a psychophysiological birth experience for women in hospitals? We've got to remember, actually, it's not about us. There's a whole system out there that's failing birthing women at every single point. And you're not responsible for that failure. You know, a lot of midwives are in the system every day battling against a medicalized system, being a physiological midwife. You can provide care for women wanting a physiological placental birth. There's no doubt about it. Your head's in the space. You've managed to fight off all the powers that be to keep a birth space safe for a woman in a hospital to have a physiological placental birth. but you in a system are powerless to provide psychophysiological birth care because that relies on a woman not being in a hospital. So the very environment. And we just want to honour you and thank you for doing what you do and thank you for being in the system and caring for these families because you are so needed and we get how hard it is and we want you to stay there because you're needed there. So thank you for doing what you do. and Thank you for listening to this and thank you for recommending us. So many people are telling me that their midwives are recommending us as like the number one birth resource. So thank you. We love you. We adore you. Keep doing it. Yes, you can keep providing physiological care in a hospital. But what we're talking about in this first option is psychophysiological care, and that's a completely different ballgame. So when they did research on it, what did they find? Okay, so the main reason we intervene in placental births is that we are terrified of postpartum hemorrhage. So then they did research on this way of caring for women, psycho psychophysiological placental births. So when they had a look and compared psychophysiological placental birth care, to just regular placental management, what we call active management, which I'm going to talk about in a minute, in hospitals. So if you're a woman and you're low risk and you have low risk of bleeding after your birth and you go to hospital and accept or receive active management of your placenta, and that's just standard care in a hospital, then you've got an 11.2% chance of still having a postpartum hemorrhage. When they had a look at the same type of woman, low risk, low risk of bleeding, who is exposed to holistic psychophysiological third stage care, the postpartum weight was 1.7. So it's seven to eight times less likely to have a postpartum hemorrhage if you honour a holistic psychophysiological third stage versus a actively managed third stage in hospital for a woman of equal risk. So this is not low-risk women compared to high-risk women. 
So it absolutely works to use this psychophysiological third stage management if we have an intention of reducing postpartum hemorrhage rates. That's where the research is because that's the only reason why we interrupt uh, placental birth is that we want to reduce the amount of time where a woman is at risk of bleeding. And the belief is, is that if we get the placenta out fast, we're going to reduce the woman's chance of having a postpartum hemorrhage. But what we're seeing now in research over the last 20 years really is that the assumption that interfering with the third stage will reduce postpartum hemorrhage rates is kind of not true. Well, it does not biologically make sense that women, that birth wouldn't work, Mm. right? And part of birth is the birth of the placenta. It does not biologically make sense that 99.9% of us need an injection to birth and placenta and finish birth because that would be a huge design flaw in our body because remembering birth is physiological, so it's a function of the body. And sure, sometimes things do happen and do go wrong and need to be medically managed and that saves lives, but it does not make sense that it would apply to all of us. We've ignored the psychophysiological process of birth and just think and that's a medical assumption is that we can do better than what the body can do and so if you leave us to it if you just let us manage this you could be kept safe and it's forgotten that actually for most of humanity's existence we haven't had oxytocin injections to bring out placentas so of course there would have been women who bled postnatally as a result of you know uh, and and died from pphs But it's not 100% of women who would have a bleed without medical attention. And so then I guess if we move on to the the next kind of option of physiological placental birth, this could happen in a hospital. You could have not an actively managed placental birth in a hospital. I do believe that's possible. And there is stats on this. It's so possible. I can for many, many women that had physiological birth and if physiological third stage or physiological birth at the center and if you're a midwife out there and you've never seen one um and you've never been a part of one a big part of it is is actually just talking to the people you're caring for about it trusting it and going for it and actually you know either teaming up with other midwives that can support you um and teach you how to trust the process and support that person birthing the placenta but i can remember my very first um physiological birth of the placenta i never saw one as a student i was a couple of years post grad and i was like i was absolutely sweating it like oh my goodness oh my goodness oh my goodness oh my goodness what's going to happen what do i do i don't know what i have to do i don't know what's going on here like that was in my you know, my headspace, that was the energy I was holding. And this woman just birthed the placenta and I was like, oh, that's how it happens. Right. Often if, you know, the best thing to do is align yourself with other midwives who have the same philosophy and can mentor you and guide you through it. But if you don't have that, that doesn't mean you can't practice this way. Get educated. You might might want to have boundaries that are a bit more safer to keep you safe and to keep the person safe to to help you start to learn. But we've all got to start somewhere. And so I just want to say, go for it. 
Start educating people that you're providing care for if there's a time and space. And in a fragmented model, I'd argue that physiological birth often isn't safe and it's really hard. You know, when a person's pushing their baby out or in labour, it's not a time to talk to them about how they want to birth their placenta. That is a decision that needs to be made and discussed in the antenatal period. All the information has to be there so that the person truly understands their options if they do want to make a decision post the birth of their baby. Totally. And, you know, we aren't really taught either at uni or at hospital how to do a physiological, how to, how to not do support, how to support a physiological third stage because hospital policies are that we actively manage placental birth. So that's the really good point for people who are pregnant listening to this. The policy will be that everyone gets offered, offered active management and some places are very, very against physiological birth and some care providers are very very against physiological third stage and you know that isn't safe yes so i've just pulled up a paper here and the title is outcomes of physiological and active third stage care amongst women in new zealand so new zealand midwives way better than australian midwives at physiological third stage uh new zealand has a um, history of well, a, hist- a better history than Australia of supporting physiological birth. I'm sure if you're in New Zealand, you might think, well, it's not that great. I can promise you it's better than Australia. So then they did. So basically they've got an opportunity to study physiological versus active management. And I realize we haven't yet explained active management. We will. But if we're thinking about the reason that the, that medical people think that the third stage should be managed is because they fear that there's a high risk of PPH and that actively managing the placenta, the placental birth is going to reduce that chance. So this is research done in 2013, and they compared the rates of bleeding for if you have physiological third stage care, which in the research they sometimes call expectant management. So in researchy words, expectant management is kind of the words for like not doing anything. So what would happen if we just didn't do anything? And then they compare that to an intervention. So in this case, the expected management was, let's just wait for the placenta. And the active management or the intervention was to give oxytocin and bring the placenta out without the input of the woman. It was all clinician-led. So in this study, 48.1% of the women in the study had a physiological third stage birth of the placenta and 519 had active management. So the findings were, and I'm reading this word for word, women who had active management had a higher risk of blood loss of more than 500 mils. The risk was 2.7 when a woman was actively managed when compared to physiological management. So they're saying there was a two-point increase risk, 2.7-fold, if you had active management versus physiological management. So Things like manual removal of the placenta, where you actually have to go in there and manually remove the placenta from the uterus, was more likely in active management. So 0.7% of women who had active management required manual removal versus 0.2% in the physiological group. And so they concluded in this study for women who were given a oxytocin or a uterotonic drug as treatment rather than prevention for a postpartum hemorrhage of more than 500 mils 
was twice as likely in the actively managed group compared to the physiologically managed group. So what they were saying, what they're saying is, is if you had oxytocin injection to prevent postpartum hemorrhage, you were twice as likely to need further medication to prevent, to stop, to treat an actual hemorrhage. You were twice as likely to require treatment to treat an actual hemorrhage if you were given preventative medication to prevent a hemorrhage. So what this research is saying is actually is prophylactic, so preventative oxytocin and actively managed placental birth actually fulfilling the need that we think it's fulfilling of preventing PPHs from this research? No, it's not by any means. And they've concluded that the use of physiological care during third stage should be considered and supported for women who are healthy, who have had a spontaneous labour and birth, regardless of the birthplace setting. So they're saying, yep, if you're in hospital, give it a go. Like, you know, birth physiology is can be very robust. Like it's incredible. And, you know, Rachel Reed talks about how it's mind-boggling that a physio- that women could actually give birth in hospital because their physiology has been so interrupted so often. But if you've had a physiological birth in hospital, feel confident that you could back yourself to have a physiological placental birth in hospital as well. Like just give it a go. If you do start to bleed after the plan to have a physiological third stage, we can still give you all that medication to stop you from bleeding afterwards. So the medication that they give to prevent you from bleeding is actually the same that we use to treat a postpartum hemorrhage. So why not wait? No. And Cochrane's got a study on this, right? And they're undecided. Yes. And I'll talk about that. We don't have good research. Yeah. And I'll talk about the Cochrane review on it because it was one in 2019 after we actually explain to you what active I know we're hanging you on to what active management what is active management yeah if you're a midwife out there and you want to help support a physiological placental birth and you're working in a hospital so home birth midwives they've nailed this we know they know here I'm talking to midwives who work in hospitals or home birth programs like through a hospital service or birth centers and you think man I would really love to help support a physiological birth Here are just a few basics of supporting physiological placental birth. Okay, so firstly, the baby has come out. Immediately, the baby should go skin to skin with the woman and there should be uh, an attempt to silence and quiet the room. Lights off, uh, blankets around the woman and baby. Preferably, the woman should be in a more upright position, so not lying flat on her back or immediately on her side, so on knees or sitting upright in the bed if possible. And then don't interrupt that process. Try to say as few words as possible. There's no need to congratulate them on their baby, to find out what the sex is, to tell them how good a job she did. Just back away. Don't say a word. You want to Make sure that the oxytocin flow that she's about to get is going to be uninterrupted by her having to think about anything, her having to respond, her having to move her gaze away from her baby or her partner. So you want to really support that whole family unit to just really hone in and concentrate on the baby. And then you don't pull on the cord, don't touch the woman's belly. The only thing I think would be a wise thing to do is to just unobtrusively observe any for any vaginal blood loss so 
if the woman is gushing blood, yes, intervene. That's our opportunity to provide medical care that could save her from a catastrophic postpartum hemorrhage. So then once that's happened, what usually happens is the baby will come out and there'll be a little break in contractions. There'll be a complete state of bliss for the parents of which you need to stay right out of. Don't you be involved in that blissful state. And then um, she'll, the woman will start to feel contractions again. That's a great sign that the uterus is starting to act to, to bring the placenta out. If the baby's starting to root at the woman's breast, you can just gently say, yeah, you know, point the baby at your nipple. If the baby latches, that's going to facilitate the whole placental birth process. And certainly if, if it's taken a while, strategies to help with physiological placental birth would be to latch the baby and, and get in a more upright birth position. Um, and the toilet is a beautiful place to birth the placenta too in terms of um, being able to release pelvic floor muscles and relax onto that. Um, and if you if the woman is going to sit on the toilet, um, lift the toilet seat, put a towel over the whole thing and put the toilet seat back down. So when the placenta is born, it falls into this towel hammock um, and doesn't fall into the toilet. I really want to advocate here that uh, it should be in the same position like for birthing and pooing on a toilet, so knees higher than hips and feet flat on something. Don't leave her on her tippy toes. Make those feet flat knees higher than hips so she can actually relax but ideally if you're supporting physiology here you're still doing what you would do during birth which is encourage maternal position if a woman is truly connected and in the zone her body will tell her exactly what position she needs to be in and she'll need support like physical support from either her partner or you to move around after birth like your legs just suddenly stop working after you have a baby so then that's all happening and then don't pull the cord, don't touch the cord, don't clamp the cord, don't cut the cord. An intact cord is important at that point to facilitate that physiology. And then what will happen is, is the placenta will start to move out and be born. It looks the same way as if you were pulling on it. And if the placenta comes and this, the membranes are still trailing, uh, you can and the woman's sitting on the toilet, for example, you can suggest that they just very slowly stand to kind of glide the membranes out. Uh, you can twist the placenta where it sits and then just use that as the, the very gentle traction to bring the membranes out. The woman can do a few coughs, which sometimes just releases the membranes to come loose. But if the membranes are still in there and there's tension on them, I would not recommend pulling the membranes because if they tear, then you've got retained membranes. But I have in the past also, you can clamp them with the little mini forceps and kind of wiggle them back and forth, not sort of not pulling, like wiggle back and forth right to left, applying very gentle traction to help it move out through the cervix. So that's a few strategies for membranes that are trailing in there. and you're more likely to have a fully intact, not rugged membranes and placenta with physiological third stage. So give it a go. Moving to the toilet, moving onto a, a birth stool or a bedpan or something like that can just help the women get the gravity they need to bring the placenta out. I do find them a bit more challenging in a water just because of the amazing support that the water offers. So that's a very quick rundown of how to facilitate a physiological placental birth. So we might just 
briefly talk about what does placental birth usually look like though for women? If you're giving birth in hospital and you're a hospital-based midwife, you'll be very, very familiar with active management. Most women in hospital will be given active, actively managed third stage as a routine care. It's Nobody would probably ask you, do you want to wait for your placenta to come or do you want to have the injection? They'll assume that you're having the injection. So you'd have to actively say, I'm planning a physiological third stage if you want if you don't want to have the injection. The consent process for giving the oxytocin injection, and in Australia it's called syntocinon. In America, they call it pitocin. So if you're hearing any American content and you hear pitocin, think syntocinon. That's the artificial oxytocin. They usually give 10 units of it and it is injected into your thigh muscle. So it's a needle. Um, many people now get an IV and they'll get five units IV if they've got a cannula in. So it may not be injected into your leg, um, but especially if you've got a cannula in, people, uh, many, many policies changed just recently in the last few years and they give it through that. And then they'll, so they'll give that, uh, they'll potentially wait a minute or so to see that you've got a big, strong contraction or that the cord is starting to lengthen or that there's a little bit of a gush of blood, which is what we call signs of placental separation. And then the midwife or doctor will apply a clamp and apply what we call controlled cord traction. So it's a gradual pressure traction on the cord, which will then bring the placenta out. For actively managed placental birth, once the baby's out, the injection is given and usually your placenta's out within five minutes or so of having had your baby. Uh, and you may or may not realise what's happened. If you don't know what they did, you had active management because if you had physiological management, you would know because you were heavily involved in the process. And we should also say too, there's a variety of techniques with active management uh, and things are kind of changing. It used to be the rule that if you did active management, you needed to all of active management. And if you did physiological placental birth, you had to do all the physiological placental birth. But there is some research talking about mixing the two techniques. So, for example, giving oxytocin and still relying on maternal effort and not doing the con controlled cord traction. There's research around not clamping and cutting the cord for active management. So there's a whole lot of other things that, you know, they're exploring, like how much of active management can we get rid of before they, you know, the risk of PPH increases in their mind. So that's active management. And we do have research from Cochrane. So B and I always talk about the Cochrane database of systematic reviews, which draws together existing research to try and pull it together and making overall conclusions. So Cochrane's considered really good quality. And they have done an updated version of active management versus expecting expectant management of the third stage. And this is done in 2019. So they start off by saying that active management is done. It was introduced to try and reduce postpartum hemorrhage, which we have to say too is it's an issue in low-income countries. So when we're looking at stats, if the research was done in a low-income country or a medium-income country, but you're in a high-income country, and in Australia we are in a high-income country, then you cannot apply any of those stats and outcomes or management to your context. So I've heard doctors talk to women about, you know, 
how women die in Africa. How women die in Africa has nothing to do with how women die in high-income countries with adequate access to medical care. So we kind of need to forget about the idea about, you know, oh, well, if we didn't do anything, everyone would die of PPH. Well, maybe malnourished women who don't have access to good care might, but not in high-income countries. So they included eight studies in this research paper, and there was 8,892 women. The studies were all undertaken in hospitals. Seven of them were in higher income countries and one was in a low income country. So then I'm not going to bore you with all the details, but they said that although the data appeared to show that active management reduced the risk of severe PPH, so that's bleeding greater than a thousand mils at the time of birth, they're uncertain of if this finding is because of the very low quality evidence. So they said while they found eight studies, all of the studies were of very low quality. So active management may reduce the incidence of blood loss following birth, but we have to consider that active management has postnate has potential harms and risks, including postnatal hypertension, so high blood pressure, pain and return to hospital due to bleeding. So that's another thing that that they have found is that physiological placental birth overall, if you consider the woman's postpartum blood loss up to six weeks, women who have a physiological third stage have less bleeding over the six weeks than of women who had management with oxytocin at birth. They actually tend to bleed more postnatally when they've left the hospital compared to women who had physiological third, third stage. So overall, will lose more blood loss, will lose more blood if you've had active management. So the Cochrane said, we must emphasize that this review only has a small number of studies with small number of participants and the quality of evidence is low or very low. So we've instituted active management as a strategy for reducing postpartum hemorrhage with very low quality evidence. We can't be sure, there's no way from the current evidence that we can be sure that our po- that our management of the third stage is actually reducing postpartum hemorrhage and because it hasn't been properly studied. Boom. We said it. I just want to highlight here, just because we've talked about PPH quickly, I just want to run through just so people actually understand maternal death, right? Because this is what typically when people get spoken to about their placenta, it's always that, yes, you might bleed and you might die, right? Well, let's look at the deaths in 2020. So in 2020 in Australia, 16 women died. So that's 5.5 deaths per 100,000 women giving birth or people giving birth. So there was 300,000 births approximately, 16 women died. Of that, we have what's called, so um, maternal death is looked at from when a person conceives to 40 days postpartum. If you die in that period, you are counted as a maternal death. Now, of those 16 people, there um, are what is called indirect maternal death and direct maternal death. So indirect maternal death means that the person has died in that period from a disease or condition that was not due to a direct obstetric cause, so not due to the pregnancy, birth or postpartum, but was aggravated because of the physiological effects of pregnancy. 
A direct death means that it was as a result of an obstetric complication of pregnancy or its management, right, which is what we do. So 44% of deaths in 22 were indirectly related to the pregnancy. 56 were direct deaths. What do you think the most common cause of death was, Mel? Women hurting themselves. So, actually used to be it used to be in 2020 it wasn't it was it used to be maternal suicide was actually the common cause of death around 2016-17 but in 2020 is it car accidents no cardiovascular ah so five there were five deaths that were cardiovascular so that is typically because they've had conditions with the heart um, and that's been aggravated with pregnancy so five were cardiovascular four were thromboembolisms two were non-obstetric hemorrhage non-obstetric hemorrhage so third cause so two deaths non-obstetric hemorrhage so bleeding that wasn't a result of pregnancy so like a car accident i would assume or stabbing or Mm-hmm. something horrific like that where you bleed two were substance use complications one was hypertensive disorders one was sepsis so postpartum hemorrhage was not a cause of death in so 2020 in australia right and that's exactly right so although they say you could bleed to death very rarely like are we seeing that in australia not like not actually at all in 2020 but- 2020, not one single woman died from bleeding to death and there were only 16 pregnant women or 16 women postnatally who died from either either during their pregnancy, birth or 40 days after having a baby. 31% during pregnancy, 7.7% died during or within 24 hours of birth and 62 after birth. So... I know, and you could argue here, well, that's because we do active management. But what we're seeing is that isn't decreasing blood loss. And I think what what also could be a factor here is that you've given artificial oxytocin in a moment where we're supposed to be relying on our body's own internal oxytocin. So our own internal oxytocin that we make is made in your brain and travels through your body. And so your brain benefits from that oxytocin. Artificial oxytocin goes into your body and can't cross into your brain, so you don't get the same effects. And then your body starts to potentially alter its own production of oxytocin in the presence of artificial oxytocin. So we, you know, not only could you be potentially robbed of the experience, but the hormonal benefit of a physiological process. That is a pivotal point. And you are messing with that. You know, last that episode 22 with Rhea, and she was talking about the importance of attachment and connection and how this point of birth, when our oxytocin's high, when our babies are still attached to us, when, you know, the process of bonding is supposed to start and we've routinely and systematically interrupted the early attachment and bonding process. So what does that do to humanity? You're messing with magic. Wow. Like... And if you listen to the Sarah Buckley episode that we had about filling hormonal gaps, you can recover. We talk about being able to fill the hormonal gaps that are left by interfered with birth. So go back in the episodes, check out the one with Sarah Buckley about hormones of labor. And we talk in there about filling hormonal gaps. So it's not all lost. We can recover. 
Before we finish, B, I want to have a quick chat to women about placental birth during cesarean section. Yes, so important. Yes. So, you know, we mentioned earlier in this episode about manual removal of the placenta, how that you can actually, with your hand, physically shear the placenta off the inside of the woman's uterus. So if your baby's been born by cesarean section, first your baby will come out and it's still attached to the cord. And usually they will immediately cut that cord and the baby's separated from the placenta and then they'll do a manual removal of the placenta through that cesarean wound and bring it out. So it happens almost immediately after the baby's born. If you want to change that story and that process, it is actually absolutely possible. I've had clients who've required cesarean sections for very legitimate medical reasons. And so we've sought out ways that you can actually not interrupt that placental birth process as much as possible. So some things you can do, if this is a non-emergency cesarean section and you've got an opportunity to talk to the team who are going to be assisting this cesarean section and bringing your baby out that way, you can ask for delayed cord clamping after a cesarean section. I've seen it done. I've seen doctors explore how to do it safely. One of the things that clinicians really worry about is that feeders are super cold and babies have trouble uh, regulating their temperature when they're first born. That's one of the important things about bringing them skin to skin and keeping them in blankets and keeping them warm after birth. So if you want the baby not to be detached from the placenta immediately after the birth and you want a few minutes of delayed cord clamping where the cord stays attached to the placenta, then you can ask them to please. So if you're positioned, you'll be positioned lying down on the on the surgical bed. If you when you first get into position to have that cesarean, slightly part your legs in a way that when the baby comes out, they could actually nestle the baby in between your legs on the operating table. And that's a little bit of a way of kind of creating a little bit of warmth and a cocoon for the baby if you want to wait a few minutes for the cord. And, you know, like B, you say with exercise, five minutes is better than no minutes. Any time extra that you can give the baby attached to its cord is better than immediate cord clamping. So even one minute or two minutes or mate, if you have a very, you know, an obstetrician super keen on giving you your wishes, three or four minutes of the baby being attached to the cord is going to allow the baby to somehow participate in how much blood it will take from its placenta before it's cut. If that's not possible and they say, no, we need to cut it immediately, tell them you want to have a lotus birth. And what that means is that the baby stays attached to its placenta long-term until you know, days and days and days until the cord comes off by itself. If you tell them, I'm planning a lotus birth, do not cut the cord. They could detach the placenta from your uterus while the cord is still attached to your baby. And obviously this relies on your baby being well when it's born. If your baby comes out due to an emergency cesarean that was done because your baby was exhibiting signs of distress and then your baby comes out and is actually struggling with transitioning to life, it may be a better option to cut the cord and have emergency care with a pediatrician. But if your baby comes out and is screaming and pink and healthy and all of the fears that led to the cesarean section birth never actually eventuated, 
and you're well yourself, why would we not wait a few minutes before cutting the cord? So these things could be done to savor that birth process and placental birth to benefit both woman and baby. And then ask to take your placenta home and you can look at your placenta and you can touch it and you can still interact with it even though you didn't yourself give birth to it. You did a beautiful job of explaining that. I just want to say that. Our next episode is actually going to be on postpartum hemorrhage. Although we covered a little bit here, there is a lot, 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 lot more to talk about with postpartum hemorrhage. So episode 25 is specific to postpartum hemorrhage and we may vaguely touch on placental birth. But This episode has been all about giving birth to your placenta and all the different ways. And if you want to read in full any of the articles that we've spoken about today, join the mailing list. And every single week I get emails from people saying, if I join the mailing list, how do I get access to previous episodes content? If you join the mailing list every Monday, you'll get an email and there's a button in that email that takes you to a grand master, huge folder, all of the content from all previous episodes. So you won't miss out on anything ever. Okay. Never send me an email again about if if I can send you all of the resources from previous episodes. No, I can't. Sign up for the mailing list and they will all be there for you. All these people are like, oh, that was me. I was one of those people. Um, I just have to touch on quickly, I know you're summarising here, but something I feel like we haven't given enough knowledge to, and we can do this in the postpartum hemorrhage, but fundal massages with active management, I think should we leave that for postpartum hemorrhage? Like it's just such a big one that so many people have trauma over because they just say we massage so well. So I think we added in a little bit here, and that is if you're a midwife or a birth worker in this space and the woman is not bleeding and you know her womb is beautifully contracted, you just need to give it a little touch, fair enough, but then just leave your hand. Stop rubbing it. Stop touching it. As soon as you know it's firm, it's firm. Walk away. Hands away from the womb, please. What B's talking about is at the end of active management, and this is part of the active management, and that's why midwives do it. So at the end of active management, after they've given the injection and they've pulled out the placenta, there is a step where the midwife will approximately find your belly button and push in and push down. Karate chop. It's a karate chop. They'll push down on your uterus and the idea is that they want to push out any blood clots that are building up in there. And so some midwives just really push and women are screaming in agony at this process. You don't do it with physiological placental birth, by the way. If the woman's had a physiological birth, so if you're not used to doing physiological placental birth and the placenta's come out by itself, we never, ever actually rub or push the fundus. Uh. No, they would, Mel. They would. It would be hospital policy of postpartum care. You're not supposed to with physiology. Yeah, but fundal massage is routine. But there's a difference between feeling if the fundus is firm. So if you're touching and you can feel that there's a big firm uterus there and you're just very gently checking, that's one thing. But fundal massage, what like actually pushing down on the fundus. Yeah, but I would say there's a huge variation in how people check a fundus. People checking the fundus. There is different variations of it and many of them will do fundal massage, which is they dig in deep and they rub and it hurts. It doesn't feel good. It's invasive. So please know that if you're well 
and you're not bleeding and it feels like they're going crazy at your uterus and you don't want them to, you say, stop, please stop. It doesn't feel good. I don't need it. Now, a lot of the trauma happens because people keep doing it just like BEs. Oh, I just need to do this. I just need to do this. Well, you're not getting consent for it. And if the person's not bleeding, it's not necessary. I'm glad you mentioned that because I totally forgot that that's routine because I don't do it. I mean, we check the fundus to see if it's mm-hmm. firm, of course, but but fundal massage is a treatment in my books, not a... It is a treatment, but it's very much been mixed in the management. Beautiful. Well, that's a wrap on placental birth. And in our next episode, we're going to talk about all things postpartum hemorrhage. We will see you in the next episode of The Great birth rebellion thanks for listening with us today don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform and join our mailing list at melaniethemidwife.com mel sends out weekly emails with access to all the evidence we use in this podcast you can find out more about mel at melaniethemidwife.com and find out more about me b at coreandfloor.com.au We can't wait to bring you next week's episode of The Great Birth Rebellion. Yeah! Yeah! (laughs) All right.